for the last number of weeks, really all of Isaiah, but particularly in the last few weeks, we've been seeing this overarching message uh, that we cannot save ourselves, that only God can save us, that, that we are, because of our sin, separated from Christ, but because of his love, he enters into our world and does for us the work that we could never do for ourselves, and he saves us not because of any work we can do in ourselves, not because of any change we can implement in ourselves, but because we trust in the finished work of Jesus. That's been the overarching message of the Isaiah over the last number of weeks. And as Christians, if you're listening to this, watching this today, you are, um, you're probably thinking, yeah, I'm a Christian, I get that. I, I, um, I understand that. That's not controversial to me that only God can save me. Um, if we're Christians, we, we believe that. In fact, that's what it means to be a Christian. If, if you don't believe that only God can save you, uh, then, then I hate to tell you this, but I have to tell you this, that you're not a Christian. You're not a Christian if you don't believe that only God can save you. That is by definition what it means to be a Christian. It means that we recognize our inability to save ourselves and we throw ourselves on the mercy of Jesus. And if you've never done that today, then I, wanna, I just want to implore you to do that, to trust in Christ this morning. But um, for most of us, maybe not all of us, but for most of us, we get this. We, we've believed this. We've, we've staked our lives on this. And we agree that only God can save us. And, and yet, we need to hear that over and over again. We need to consistently hear that message. Why? Because like Martin Luther said so many hundreds of years ago, uh, we, are so, we are so easily forgetful of that. He was asked one time by uh, somebody that wondered why he preached the gospel every Sunday to his congregation, and his response was simply, because every week, we forget it. And, and so I, I agree with that. I think there is, something, um, there is something that's just in us, the sinfulness that's in us that just drives us to forget that only God can save us. And so Isaiah has been a beautiful reminder that that is true and we need to hear it week after week. We always need to put that in front of us. But here's what's interesting. In, in the passage in front of us, Isaiah is certainly going to continue to tell us that. But he's going to go a bit further. He's going to go even further. He's going to take it another step. And, and he's going to tell us that not only can we not save ourselves, but, but the way that God works in the world to save us will not be the way that any of us expects. Th that's what we're seeing. Now, Isaiah was written hundreds of years before Jesus came into the world. And so what he's doing is he's preparing the people of Israel for their coming Savior. And, and he's telling them that, that they 
cannot save themselves, that they need a rescuer, but he's also going to tell him, tell them that, that the way God is going to save them is not going to be how they expect. That the way in which God chooses to, to bring salvation to the world is not through the typical thing we would, we would think. And so um, he's going to display that and demonstrate that through a pretty interesting uh, way. And, here, and, and it's going to be through this person that we're introduced to. Um, this king that we were, that were introduced to, this man named Cyrus, who is the king of Persia. Now, Cyrus, we should make mention of this, Cyrus in the days of Isaiah was not even born yet. Uh, he was not um, even a thought. It was a couple of hundred years before Cyrus would actually come onto the scene of the, the geopolitical landscape of the day. But Isaiah is being told by God to tell the people that there will be this this man named Cyrus who God is going to use in a particular way. Now, as we walk through this, we're going to see how God chooses to use Cyrus. We're going to see how Cyrus is a very unlikely candidate for God to use. And and my hope is, is that we will be able to look beyond Cyrus and see that he is actually the type, a type of Christ, even though he's not Christ. Uh, what we're going to see today is that God used human history to do something intentional with his people, but that that ultimately is going to point us to the true savior of the world. Cyrus is not the savior that we ultimately need. He was just one of God's instruments to get to a particular conclusion uh, in, in a point in time. But that Cyrus serves as a shadow or a precursor of what Jesus Christ would ultimately be for us through the gospel. So the, the book of Hebrews in chapter 10 talks about how the law, which can be a reference to the specific laws of the Old Testament or to the Old Testament itself, is, it says, but a shadow of the things to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. And so what the Bible tells us is that in the Old Testament, the things that are there are there to point us to Jesus, but they are not the real thing. They're not Jesus. They are just the shadows of what would actually come through Christ. They are the, the shadow and Jesus is the substance. So you, you understand that, right? Like if you had a, a light casting a shadow uh, of your form, of your body, you, you could see an outline of yourself, but that shadow is not you, right? That shadow can give some generic ideas about you, at least your physical shape, but it's not you. You are the substance. The shadow is is just something that the light is uh, creating as your body blocks it. And so the idea of the Old Testament as a shadow is this, that 
It, it, it is true, it all happened, but it's all meant to point us to what Jesus truly fulfills. And so what Cyrus is going to do is just a shadow of what Christ will ultimately do. So I, I want us to see that here out of the gate before we dive into the text. But let's do that now. Uh, let's dive in without any more introduction. Um, let's start reading at verse 24 of chapter 44. And uh, we'll, we'll go until we need to stop and talk about it. Okay. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself who frustrates the signs of liars and makes fools of diviners, who turns wise men back and makes their knowledge foolish, who confirms the word of his servant and fulfills the counsel of his messengers, who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited, and of the cities of Judah they shall be built, and I will raise up their ruins, who says to the deep, be dry, I will dry up your rivers, who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd. He shall fulfill all my purpose. Saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built and of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. Okay, so here's what God is starting us to see. He's, he's reaffirming what we said here at the beginning that only he can save us, right? He, he's going through this and he's saying, I'm your redeemer. I'm your creator. I'm the one that formed you. I'm the one that made the sky. I'm the one that made the earth. I'm the one who did all of this, and I didn't need any of your help. And he says, I actually put to shame and make fools of the people you think are wise. I accomplish my purposes, is what he's saying. He's telling us that only he can truly know the future, and only he can truly know what's wise and what's not. And, and no matter how hard we try, we just do not know these things. And then in verse 28, we're introduced by name to a man who has not even been born yet. This is amazing uh, prophetic work. This is not generic, like, you, you know, very unspecific detail. This is extremely specific detail. And, and he's naming this man who will be born nearly 200 years later, uh, this man named Cyrus, who God says will be his shepherd and will fulfill his purpose. And, and his purpose is, it says, that Jerusalem shall be rebuilt and the temple will have its foundation laid. So what's happening here? Well, um, we've been told in the context uh, earlier in the book that uh, God is warning his people that Babylon is going to come in and basically destroy everything. They're going to tear down the temple. They're going to capture everybody, haul them away from their home, bring them into exile. Okay, that's going to happen. That happens historically. Babylon and, that, and their king and their great empire capture all these people and destroy their cities. But what God is saying here is this, that even though that's going to happen, <clears throat> that is not the end of the story. God is going to raise up a, a leader who will come to them and rescue them and allow them to return to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. And, and that's 
this man named Cyrus. This is, this is who it is. And we know that Cyrus is the king of Persia. So the Persian Empire, a couple hundred years after these things happen, come, becomes the, the major power player, and they defeat the Babylonians. And because they defeated the Babylonians, that enabled them to let the people return back to their land. We actually can read about it a little bit in the book of Ezra. Um, in Ezra 1, uh, the first just couple of paragraphs tells us what's happening. That what, what Isaiah is talking about, or what Isaiah is prophesying will happen. And here's when it happens. It says, In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. So Jeremiah also talks about this event, and he's the one who's mentioned here. But Isaiah talks about it too. But that, the, but that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you all of all his people, may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and with gold, with goods and with beasts, besides free will offerings for the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. So what we're seeing come to pass a couple hundred years later is that Persia defeats the Babylonians and Ezra is writing about this. Um, he says that Cyrus, the king of Persia, lets the people go back to their homeland. Now here's what I think is, is interesting. We, we need to realize what uh, is happening here. But before, well, let, let's read a little bit further. Just, I'm just realizing there's some more detail here I want to get to. So let's read uh, 45, 1 through uh, 7, and then we'll stop and, or 1 through, actually 1 through 8, and then we'll stop and talk a little bit more. All right. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped, to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. I will go before you and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes of secret places that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by name. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen, I call you by name. I name you, though you do not know me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Shower, O heavens, from above, and let the clouds rain down righteousness. Let the earth open that salvation and righteousness may bear fruit. Let the earth cause them both to sprout. I, the Lord, have created it. All right, so, so here's what God is telling us. He's, 
he's telling us that he is actually going to do something that they would never expect. That he is going to use a pagan Gentile king to be the one that lets them come back to their land. This is just really fascinating when you think about it from the context of where they're living. See, Isaiah, over the last chapter or two, has been arguing, and we've been looking at this, that how idols and idol worshipers are foolish. Right? So idols are foolish, those who worship idols are foolish, but here we have Cyrus, who was an idolater. Now, we, we read in Ezra 1 that he did give credit to God for, of Israel for the victory over Babylon. And, and he did free the, the Jewish people to go home and rebuild their temple. But what we need to realize is that that was not because Cyrus really truly believed in the God of Israel. No, that was just Cyrus's way of being diplomatic. That was his policy. We know from history that Cyrus did this for all of the foreign people that he that were enslaved by Babylon. He rebuilt all of their temples. That was his policy. That's what he wanted to do because here's why. Because he wanted to have the favor of all the gods. He didn't care which god it was necessarily, but he let everybody, every captured people from the Babylonian empire go back to their homes and rebuild the temples to their gods because he wanted to just basically hedge his bets and go, look, one of these gods is bound to be real, so I better make them all happy. We actually have a record of this in his own words uh, historically. Um, it's not in the Bible, but it's, it's in some texts from the, from the era that have been discovered. It's very fascinating. But here's what's amazing. Here's what's even more crazy. If you were a, 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 a Jewish person in Isaiah's day, hearing this would have made you very confused because God calls this pagan politician, he calls him my shepherd. And he speaks of him as his anointed one, which that word anointed is a messianic term. Um, and, and we can actually feel this when we, when we see how this passage is translated in the Septuagint, which is uh, the, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. So, from, from, so the, basically the Bible that would have been read by uh, some of the early Christians, the Old Testament that would have been read by m- most of the people in the book of Acts, um, if they didn't know Hebrew, they would have to read it in Greek. And so that was the Septuagint. But this is how it, so it's not a perfect translation. It's not the, it's not the inspired autographs, but it is a, an, a- an ancient translation. And here's wh- how it translates it. It calls Cyrus a Christ. That's crazy. That's a, he, he's a shepherd. He's an anointed one. He, and these were terms that were used of uh, the royal line of David. And now God is putting those titles on a king who is a Gentile conqueror. 
it, it must have seemed to the first to the people first reading this that God was not just washing his hands of them but he was actually overthrowing the whole moral order of the universe and yet God says I am the Lord who does these things he in fact goes on in the in the verses we read in chapter 45 he says I'm the one who goes before Cyrus. I'm holding his hand. I'm leveling the ground. I'm opening the gates. I'm accomplishing these purposes so that he can beat the Babylonians. Now, he's doing all of this to accomplish his purpose of bringing the people back to their land, but he's using a very unlikely hero here. And, and I, I just want to point out to us that God is doing this because he has, a, he has wisdom that we don't have. And God is doing this because in his sovereignty, he, he knows that this is the way to accomplish it. And, and, you know, the truth of the matter is, is that when we see things that we just don't understand, we can be offended by it. But God is big enough to handle our offense His sovereignty is great enough that he's not shaken by our offense. Uh, Let's keep reading. We've got quite a bit more of the chapter to get through. So uh, let's look at verse 9 and following. It says, Woe to him who strives with him who formed him, a pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, What are you making? Or your work has no handles? Woe to him who says to a father, what are you begetting? Or to a woman, with what are you in labor? Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, and the one who formed him, ask me of things to come. Will you command me concerning my children and the work of my hands? I made the earth and created man on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens, and I commanded all their hosts. I have stirred him up in righteousness, and I will make all his ways level. He shall build my city and set my exiles free, not for price or reward, says the Lord of hosts. So here God is going to actually address the offensive, the offense and the frustration of his people. And what he says is this, um, look, you can, you can argue with me all you want about this, um, but at the end of the day, I'm God, you're not. At the end of the day, You are what I make, and you don't have the right to tell me what to do. God is saying in this, he he says, Woe to him who strives with him who formed him. So woe to him who fights with God. It's It's okay for us to question as long as our questioning is humble. God tells us, actually, Uh, In verse 11, ask me of the things to come. He's okay with our questions. He's not okay with our uh, our prideful arrogance and thinking we know what's best. And so he says, listen, we're not here to fight with God about his plan and his purposes. In fact, he goes on to say, does the clay say to the one who forms it, what are you making or your work has no handles? In other words, look at think this is kind of funny, right? That imagine a pot looking up at the potter and going, "Really? You didn't even put handles on me. This is this is like clay doesn't do that. 
And the point is, is that we shouldn't do that either. We shouldn't presume to know what, what, we, what God ought to do. We should trust that he knows what he's doing. Verse 12 says, I made the earth and created man on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens and commanded all their hosts. And, and so he says, look, I'm the one who created all of this to begin with. And guess what? Then he says this, verse 13, I have stirred him, Cyrus, up in righteousness, and I will make all his way level. He shall build my city and set my exiles free, not for price or reward, says the Lord of hosts. God is saying, listen, you may not like it. You may not agree with it. You may not understand it, but I'm going to use Cyrus and I'm going to level his path and I'm going to call him and he's going to build my city and set my exiles free and he's going to accomplish my purposes and I'm not going to pay him a dime to do it. (laughs) I think that's great. God is reminding us again that he is God, that he's in charge, that he's in control. And, And we, our response should be, Humble submission to his plan and his purposes. Let's keep reading. Verse 14, thus says the Lord, the wealth of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush and the Sabians, men of stature, shall come over to you and be yours. They shall follow you. They shall come over in chains and bow down to you. They will plead with you, saying, Surely God is in you, and there is no other, no God besides him. Truly you are a God who hides himself, O God of Israel, the Savior. All of them are put to shame and confounded. The makers of idols go in confusion together. But Israel is saved by the Lord with everlasting salvation. You shall not be put to shame or confounded to all eternity. For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, he is God who formed the earth and made it. He established it. He did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is no other. I did not speak in secret in a land of darkness. I did not say with the offspring of Jacob, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. Assemble yourselves and come. Draw near together, you survivors of the nations. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idols and keep on praying to a God that cannot save. Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none besides me. I mean, and all that, what he's simply saying is this, is that we, we have nowhere else to turn. We may not understand what God is up to. We may not understand why he does what he does. But who else are we going to turn to? The, the idols of, of the nations are worthless. They can't help us. We, we can't pray to gods who have no power to save. We only have him. And he's not lying to us. He's not deceiving us. He's telling us the truth. We just, we, we need to believe. We need to trust him. And that's what he says next in verse 22. It says, turn to me and be saved. All the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. 
Only in the Lord it shall be said of me, our righteousness and strength to him shall come and be ashamed. All who were incensed against him in the Lord, all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. God is telling us this, that our response to him being God is not to question his every move. It's not to wonder about what he's doing. It is to turn to him and be saved. It is to turn to him and be saved because he is God and there is no other. There's no other God. There's no one else we can turn to. There's, he's the only one who can save us. And he tells us this, that every knee will bow to him and every tongue will swear allegiance. That passage, that verse is applied to Jesus um, by the Apostle Paul where he says that every tongue will confess and every knee will bow that Jesus Christ is Lord. We know that this is who it's talking about, Jesus. And, and through Jesus, we see this, that Verse 25, in the Lord, all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. In the Lord, all who are uh, Israel become justified. Now, what does it mean to be Israel? Well, there's national Israel, there's ethnic Israel, but there's also spiritual Israel. The Bible talks about it. Romans chapter 4, Paul says that anyone, everyone who believes and trusts in Jesus is, is an heir is a son of Abraham. And because we're in Jesus, we are justified. That's the truth. So the point of this passage is pretty simple. That God has a purpose and a plan. It doesn't always make sense to us, but his purpose and plan is fulfilled in Jesus and and Cyrus is just a precursor to that he's he's an imperfect example of it but Jesus is the fullness of God's saving work but but even Jesus was not the one that people expected Jesus did not do all the things that they thought he would he didn't he didn't accomplish what the people in his own day believed the Messiah would, would accomplish. Jesus had a fundamentally different mission than what people expected. That doesn't mean that God was ineffectual to save. It meant that the people around him did not understand what God's true mission was. The people in Isaiah's day probably didn't understand it either. It, when God was telling them that this man from Persia would save them. But the truth of the matter is, is that we, we need to see Jesus as the, as the ultimate rescuer for us, even though the message of the gospel is, is one that may sound foolish. It may sound foolish to those who don't believe. The, the, the idea that we have a a God who would become a man and then die on a cross is a seemingly foolish message. And the Bible tells us that. The Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul makes this very point. He says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. It is the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But, he says, 
to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. It's a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Here's what Paul's simply saying. He's telling us that the message of the gospel is, is a foolish message, message in worldly wisdom. It's foolish. It doesn't sound like the kind of you know, conquering king that we would expect Jesus to be. He was a crucified savior. And, and that message is going to fall on ears that thinks it's a, it's a dumb message. But to those of us who are being saved by it, to those of us who have trusted in Jesus, we know that it's the power of God to work in weakness and to work in foolishness and to work in what we would call um, just folly. He works in those things and he displays his strength. Now here's why that's good news for us. It's good news that God uses what is weak and what is foolish in the world because that means that you and I have hope. Look at verse 20. Six. It says, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. Paul says, think about your own salvation. God didn't choose you because you were strong. God didn't choose you because you were wise. God didn't choose you because you were of noble birth. No, God chose you because he loved you. And he chose you in your foolishness, in your weakness, in your low and despised position. He chose you in that, while you were in that, because it displays the greatness of God. Our, our salvation is not to make us boast in ourselves, but it is to help us to glory in Jesus 
That's the amazing thing here. So that anyone who boasts has to boast in the Lord because you were not an impressive person to God. Neither was I. God didn't save me because of my resume. He didn't save you because of your resume. He saved us despite the fact that we've ruined everything for ourselves. And yet he came in and rescued us. And see, the thing is that we have to get to this point where we see Jesus as our only hope of of being saved and changed. We have to get there. We have to realize that we have nothing to brag about and boast and we only have Jesus to lean on. And, and I was reminded of this. Um, there's a story uh, in C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia. One of the books is called The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. And, and maybe you've read it, maybe you haven't. But there's, in that book, there's a, a boy that we meet named Eustace. And Lewis describes Eustace as a, really snotty, bratty kid who almost deserves to be named Eustace. And uh, he, he is um, one of the cousins of the main characters in the Chronicles of Narnia. And he's swept into this world, this, this fantastical world of Narnia. And he's brought onto a boat called the Dawn Treader. And the Dawn Treader is a ship that's going on a voyage to the end of the world. And on their journey, they stop at numerous islands. And one of the islands that they get to, Eustace uh, wanders off, kind of in his bratty nature, doesn't want to trust anybody else uh, on the ship. And he wanders off and he finds a dragon and sees the dragon die. The dragon is old, it dies, and, and so... Eustace runs into its cave and starts hoarding its gold. And by doing that, he finds himself transformed into a dragon. And he has no way of uh, changing himself back. He, doesn't, he thinks he's going to be a dragon for the rest of his life. And here's the thing. Lewis is making a really important point here. Uh, Eustace, even when he was in the form of a boy, was already a dragon. It's just that now his, the outside of him matched the inside of him. He was always a greedy, wicked little thing, and, and yet now he just fits the bill physically. Well, while Eustace is uh, in this form, he meets the Christ figure in the books, this lion named Aslan. And Aslan um, comes to him and, and says to him, um, You've got, to, you've got to shed your skin. You've got to take off your clothes and, and change, change your clothes. And so Eustace realizes he's talking about uh, getting the dragon's skin off of him. So he begins to shed the skin like, like a snake would, right? And he starts ripping up away at the, at, at the dragon's scales and his skin comes off, but he's still a dragon, he does that several times. He takes his dragon claws and he's just tearing away at the skin and he takes off another layer and he's still a dragon. And finally, Aslan says to him, no, you don't understand. You have to let me do it. You have to let me do it. And Eustace describes it as he was terrified of the lion's claws and he didn't want to let him do it at first, but he 
knew he had no other choice. And so Aslan begins to tear away at this dragon's skin, and Eustace describes it as the most excruciating pain he'd ever had. But by the end of the process, he was transformed back into his normal self, but he was a changed person. And that story, it's a children's story, and it, but it highlights something for us that we, that we all need to hear about Jesus. It's that we cannot change ourselves. No matter how hard we try, we cannot con- conform to what we need to be. Only Jesus can do it for us. And yes, he does it through a very unlikely way, which is a crucified Savior. But if we are humble and willing to submit our lives to our crucified and risen Jesus, then we will be changed. We will be transformed. And we will see God at work in us and making us what he wants us to be. Not immediately overnight, but as we grow and, and become more and more mature through our lives. And that's, that's the hope we have. Not to boast in ourselves. We have no reason to boast because we didn't accomplish any of it. But Jesus, in his wisdom and strength, can take foolish and weak people and turn them into what he wants them to be. And let's stake our hope on that. So we're going to take just a moment uh, to pray, and then we'll go into a time of singing together this morning. So let's, let's pray and ask the Lord to uh, say what he wants to say in our hearts through this. Father, we do pray that you would use your word in our lives today. Help us to believe what you want us to believe. Help us to, to respond how you want us to respond. And we pray that we would lift up our voices this morning in praise to your great grace. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we'll take some time to sing together. We'd invite you to do that right now. And uh, then we'll come back for a benediction.